If you're a guest with us, we, know, we just go right through the scriptures and we're in Galatians chapter three, as you've joined us today. So we're gonna be doing the first five verses of Galatians chapter three. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Galatians chapter three, one through five. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So we stopped mid-sentence, but I uh, wanted to save the rest because it all connects. The next half of that last sentence connects with the message next week. So we kind of stopped in the middle. Um, but the first verse says, again, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This, this letter to the Galatians, and especially this chapter, starts off with this harshness that we rarely see in Paul's letters. It was kind of like saying, I mean, maybe if we were to say it today, it would be, how could you be so stupid? It was harsh. Tough love was needed to turn them away from the pride of trying to add to what Christ had already accomplished for them. It's the height of foolishness to try to finish what God has begun in us in our own strength. Was it our efforts that saved us or was it the grace of God? Did they one day understand that Jesus stood in for them taking their punishment on the cross and then the next day say, I know, I'll take care of this myself. I'm gonna start obeying the laws of Moses and therefore make myself more sanctified. After teaching the Galatians this wonderful gospel of grace, Paul is dumbfounded that they're now trying to finish the work by obeying Jewish ritual laws. Bewitch, this word here that's used in the beginning of this chapter, is it's only used in this one place in scripture. And it's to, it, the word means to fascinate someone with your speech. Some commentators connect it with what was popular at the time, the evil eye. I got the evil eye last week from Sunday. <laughs> um, and, and for them, it was the, like this spell that was cast on them. In our passage, Paul asks them this series of questions. He's gonna ask, he actually asked six questions in these five verses. And the first one was, who has bewitched you? In this case, it was to turn them away from grace alone, from trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to remove all our sins to salvation by works instead. Paul told of the crucifixion to them in such a vivid manner, it was as if they were there, as if it was vivid, they were seeing it themselves. And it must have been one powerful sermon. I would like to hear that sermon. One commentator thinks Paul was probably using the example of his own body. Pastor Todd Wilson writes, 
As a result of his many trials and tribulations, Paul had indeed been crucified with Christ. And in the flesh and blood of his very suffering, the gash across his forehead, the welts on his arm, the black and blue around his eyes, the scars down his back, the Galatians see the crucified Christ publicly portrayed. Preaching should always portray the crucified Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says we preach Christ and him crucified. It's there that we see the love of God on display to such an extent that we can't help but be drawn and respond in loving gratitude. Paul had certainly preached that way to the Galatians. And how could they forget the wonderful mercy of grace that was freely offered to those who didn't deserve it? How can we forget? I think Zafia just testified how she'll never forget. And it should be the same for all of us. I found A. McLaren's warning from this passage worth quoting here. He writes, Many men's Christianity trickles out without their knowing it. They're too busy to look after it or even to notice its escape. And so drop, 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 slow and unnoticed. Through the leak it slips until there's none left but the real cause lies within. No outward temptation has any power to seduce unless we choose to allow it. If I had not combustibles in my heart, it would do me no harm to put ever so fierce a light to it. But if I carry about a keg of gunpowder within me, I must not blame the match if it comes to an explosion. It's because our hearts don't find in Jesus Christ all that they crave, that we are unfaithful and turn away from him. And it's because our hearts are foolish and bad that they do not find in him all that they crave. If we were as we should be, there would not be a desire in us that would not be met in our loving Lord in his sweetness and grace. And if there were not a desire in us that was not met in our loving Lord's sweetness and grace, then all these temptations might play on us innocuously. We should walk through the fire and not be burned. I hope that grabbed your heart like it grabbed mine. Whew. Who had bewitched them with this mesmerizing lie? Well, it was the Judaizers, those people who believe Jesus was the Messiah, and yet you have to be circumcised and keep the laws of Moses. But the original language is singular here. What person in the Greek? It's, it's one person. And Paul may be saying that it's the old deceiver, the devil, who used those legalists from Jerusalem to try to stop their growth in Christ. Like the Earthmen and C.S. Lewis, Prince Caspian, they were under the spell of the evil queen, begrudgingly laboring, though they knew it not, and not why. The evil queen was using them to build her kingdom in an attempt to take over Aslan's kingdom. They were laboring unseen in the darkness below, but once the power of the queen was shattered, they realized they were freed from serving her and joyfully returned to what they were created to do. If you haven't read the whole series of Narnia, it's awesome. And if you have kids or grandkids, you've got to read it to them. 
because it's life-changing. And it's a, this, Prince Ka, this story of how Prince Caspian delivered them from the evil queen and, and set those uh, earth people free is such a picture of our redemption. And it was all by grace. It's a perfect parallel to what happened to the Galatians. The enemy wants us to trust in works because he knows our actions will never save us and will distract us from the power of the cross. It's his attempt to claim us out of God's kingdom for his own. Trust in yourself, he says. God can see how faithful you are to obey the rituals. You're more consistent, after all, than other people in your fellowship. You don't need to die to yourself and slavishly serve others. And when we fall under that spell, we neglect the grace that is ours and end up a slave to the sin of pride and self-righteousness. And then we begin to say, who needs the church? I can do it without having to deal with all these people. Besides, I can see where they're failing in so many areas. I can have fellowship with a few of my friends, and especially the ones that agree with me on everything. And the downhill slide begins. Who has bewitched those who think this way? Sometimes it's their own heart. The old nature pleaded for more freedom and they didn't resist it, but instead justified their pleas, those pleas within them for a little more freedom from the Spirit's guidance and from the refining work that the Spirit's doing in their life. That striving for unity with those who are as imperfect as ourselves. Verse two, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul's second question, very straightforward. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by being circumcised and obeying all the rules or was it by hearing with faith? So Paul is appealing to their personal experience. Now, our personal experience doesn't, isn't always a revelation of truth. But a lot of times God takes us through things in our lives and, and to teach us. And we can look back on those lessons that God's brought us through and the experiences that we have. In this case, it was how did you experience salvation? And they knew the answer. They knew it was all a work of God, that they didn't have anything to do with it. Did they receive the Holy Spirit through obedience to the law or hearing mixed with faith? And of course, it was the latter. It was the grace of God that convicted them when they heard the word preached, and the same grace helped them trust in Christ. That faith received the forgiveness that Christ merited for us on the cross, which made them sanctified vessels that could be filled with the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus' sacrifice that sanctified them and us, not just for the moment we were filled, or the Holy Spirit would depart from us like he did from those in the Old Testament. The cross made everything, everything different. We remain sanctified in God's eyes and that's why the Holy Spirit remains in us. That's grace. So why did they think the law would benefit them or, or even bring them closer to God? How were they bewitched? Perhaps it was the smooth rhetoric of the Judaizers that that their apparent rituals that seem so super spiritual. We should learn from this how easily the old nature would cling to religious routines and actions rather than a complete dependence on Jesus 
and Jesus alone, a relationship with him. That's a way for pride, that self-dependence, self-reliance, a way for pride to sleep in, sneak in and seek honor from others for our supposed spiritual greatness. Remember how Jesus told us to give in secret and that we were, when we fasted, we weren't appeared to fast. We're so, Jesus is teaching us to avoid looking super spiritual in, other eye, in others' eyes because it feeds our ego, feeds our pride. If we want to receive the Spirit and have him work in our lives, what does he say to do? Hear the word with faith. Paul not only experienced this himself and saw the process in other lives, in the lives of the Galatians, but he also saw it in the prophet's writings as well. Isaiah 66, 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God's eyes are on the humble person who trembles at God's word. That's a person who receives the spirit by faith. And when we disconnect the spirit from the word, we run the risk of the flesh deceiving us into thinking we're super spiritual which is self-deception. De- self you know, for many years, uh, we used to have, my, my grandfather built this swinging bridge across Oak Creek. He, he set these pylons on both sides and he runs steel cables across. And when the flood water was, would come up over our bridge, our, our cars couldn't get across, they'd be swept away. So we would cross that swinging bridge. And it's kind of, I, I saw an analogy in that. And that we can see it there. It's kind of like the word of God. We can see it there. We can acknowledge it's true, that it's available to us. But unless we take that first step of faith out onto that bridge that goes over that raging creek below, we won't cross. The world and its allurements and temptations are like that raging creek below. It can wash us away as floods washed away drivers who thought their car was able to cross. I had to recognize the danger of understanding the power of the water. And then I had to put my faith in that swinging bridge. You know, it's was, it was interesting to see people who, when, it, when they first crossed it, how they'd take a little hesitant step at a time and they'd hang on to both of the cables on both sides and their eyes would get really big and they'd go really slow across. But after you went across it a few times, you learned it was safe and it was, it was good. We must not only hear the word of God, but we have to step out on it in faith. Verse three, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The third question was, are you so foolish? Couldn't they see what had been done for them? In my analogy, they'd crossed the swinging footbridge, but now they want to drive back across it, the car bridge. They want to trust that their car can somehow withstand the force of the water, the world and all its temptations and try to drive back. That's just foolish. Not only will you not be able to get to the other side, but you'll be swept away in a flood of pride and in how spiritual you are. By the way, my granddaughter Kara crossed the bridge last night. 
Seven years old, she accepted Jesus as her Savior. She stepped out, took a step, and crossed that bridge. I'm so proud of her, so glad for her. The question was, how are you so foolish in verse 3? Having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Question 4 asks them, if after having begun by the spirit, do they now think they, the flesh would perfect, perfect them somehow? God poured out his spirit on them when by faith they received God's message that Paul proclaimed. Did they think that now perfection could be reached by going back to the old covenant and that demand of complete obedience? Would their best efforts now finish the work God started or was their perfection dependent on Christ alone? Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, a promise that I cling to and I, I think you can all cling to as well, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Hang on to that one. And when the floodwaters rise, hang on to that one. That's like hanging on to that cable because it's sure. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I've seen it in my own life and others. We get, we get frustrated at our slow spiritual growth, so we think if we do this or do that, we'll become more spiritual. Maybe the spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, meditation on God's word, and certainly those can help us grow, but they have to develop out of our love for God and at the leading of the Holy Spirit by his conviction. They become tools that God can use to help us, not just gritting your teeth and reading a book and trying to do what the book says in your own effort and in your own strength while ignoring the promptings of the Holy Spirit. If your Christian life is drudgery, we're probably going about the spiritual disciplines in the flesh. If you think, oh gosh, I gotta pray this morning, <laughs> there's a problem there. <laughs> you need to focus back on your relationship with Jesus and let him speak to your heart. Let him prompt your prayers. Pour out your heart to him and let him share his heart with you. Sure, sometimes we, we, he asks us to do things we don't want to do, but he gives us peace in doing it. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He will also lead us to times of refreshing and times of abundant joy. The mundane things that we do in everyday life can be done for the glory of God. Paul wrote, if you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that, those routine things that we have to do every day, that's where the rubber really meets the road. You know, it was Brother Lawrence who, who had the job in his monastery of washing the dishes. And he would get, he would be washing dishes and pretty soon he'd go, oh, wait a minute, I didn't do these to the glory of God. He'd take them back to the other side and redo them, praising God and giving him glory as he did it. And uh, archbishops came to receive counsel from this dishwasher. It makes a difference in your life when you do all that you do to the glory of God. Any of us can be excited about joyful leading someone to Christ or sharing scripture, but what about doing a repetitive job in such a way as to glorify God? 
if we're so lit with the Holy Spirit, someone's gonna ask us about the joy on our face and then we have an opportunity to share. Even just serving others with a smile can show the love of Christ that's in our hearts and can affect people in ways that we will never know. Sincerity is often a felt thing. People can tell the difference. When you say, have a nice day, you can just say, have a nice day, or you can say it from your heart. And people know there's a difference. What if you ask your employer if you could put a track in every sales bag? You know, there used to be somebody that worked uptown that did that. They asked their employer, can I put a track, a gospel track in every, because they knew their employer was a believer, and they said, yeah. So every day they served, and every sales, they put a gospel track in every bag. Or you could have a contact card ready just with your name and telephone number, and you see somebody's going through a trial or a hard time, and you ask them how's it going, and they, you know, oh, yeah, it could be better. Give them your card. Tell them to call you after work. What a great opportunity to meet people and share the love of Christ with them. Verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Question five is, was so much of what they suffered and experienced in following Jesus all for nothing? If works are required, the suffering that they went through to this point was meaningless because they were suffering for the claim of Christ did it all. Christ is my savior by faith. That's what made them different from those in the synagogue. They could have just converted to Judaism and not been rejected by Jews if, if works was going to be sufficient. At that time, the Roman guilds, the Greek guilds of, of different trades, knew that Jews didn't sacrifice at the altars of their particular guild god. And Rome had made an exception of that requirement for Jews. So if you worked in a copper guild then and you were a Jew you didn't have to do what everybody else did put some incense on the altar each morning so part of the enticement of the law was that they could blend in with the Jews and not be persecuted did they suffer persecution in vain because they could have just stayed a Jew believed in Judaism converted to Judaism and still believe in Jesus Pastor Todd Wilson points out the three in vain warnings that Paul made in this letter so far, he says three times in Galatians, Paul had raised the specter of the absurd consequences of justification by works. Paul raised the possibility that his missionary labors might have been in vain. That was um, 2.21. He raised the stakes and suggested that if righteousness could be gained from the law, even Christ would have died in vain. And now, here in chapter 3, verse 4, he queried the Galatians about whether the Spirit had been given to them in vain. In effect, he was saying to them, see where this kind of theology will lead you? If salvation is not the work of God from first to the last, then the preaching of the gospel is vanity. The cross of Christ is a farce, and the gift of the Holy Spirit means nothing. This is a similar issue to what some of us are studying in the book of Hebrews. Here in Galatians, it's Jesus plus the Jewish laws for salvation. In Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it was 
uh, hide your faith in Christ as you practice Jewish laws so as not to be persecuted. In both cases, the motivation had been to avoid persecution by making it unclear to others where their faith really stood. There's no getting around the fact that if that Christ is offensive. Because when you preach Christ, you're saying you are bad, he is good, you need to repent and let him do what you can't do for yourself. That hurts the ego. And we don't like to hear that message, but it's a true message. Mankind just has too much pride to admit we can do nothing. And we need someone to do what we can't. Total reliance on Jesus is humbling. We like superheroes who will save us. We just don't like the superhero who will save us from ourselves. Verse 5, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So question six now, is the ongoing supply of the spirit in them and the miracles he does in their midst, the result of the law or faith. The same spirit in them supplies a fresh infilling by faith. The law had nothing to do with the spirit working in their midst. Mixing hearing with faith had been their daily renewal in the spirit, resulting in miracles. They had not been circumcised then, so why did they need to do it now? If the Spirit is alive and working in us, why would we think some ritual act would be required to have it continue? The miracles Paul's referring to might include something we heard earlier, the transformation of a life, healing, words of knowledge, supernatural protection, casting out of demons, and the like. If all this was taking place, why would they now think that they had to obey the law to please God? The verse is telling us that both the infilling of the Spirit and the daily supply of the Spirit had come through the word mixed with faith and not by works. One more quote from Todd Wilson. Realize then that religious activities in themselves do not mediate the presence of the Spirit. We can engage in all sorts of church activities, but the hearing of faith isn't undergirding it. Then all we have is lots of activity. We may be busy, but it will lack the empowering presence of the Spirit. This insight ought to motivate us to give top priority to the Word of God in everything that we do. If we desire the presence, we must be Bible people. We need to be word-driven in our approach to ministry and to life because God's presence comes as we respond to God's word in faith. God the Father loves to honor God the Son by supplying us with God the Spirit in response to our responsiveness to his word. For as God says through the prophet Isaiah, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God looks to the one who hears his word with faith. God pours out his very presence into the life of just that kind of person. And inversely, 
we can break our communication with the Spirit when we intentionally sin. Confession and returning to the cross restores that communication. It's not that the Holy Spirit leaves us, but that we turn off the line of communication when we sin. It's like a couple who quits speaking to one another because somebody committed an offense against the other. If I tell the Spirit I don't want to hear from him because I'm planning on sinning, he's not going to speak to me. Now, he may make me uncomfortable, and he probably will, but until I confess and forsake that sin, I've cut down, I've cut off our communication. These six questions, Paul asked the Galatians, are meant to make it clear that the new covenant does not rely on participation in the old covenant. The spirit working in and through us for the glory of God is in no way dependent on the laws of Moses. Grace has ushered us into this wonderful relationship with God, dependent only on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's the essence of the new covenant. And instead of cleansing us to become, uh, causing us, I'm sorry, to become lax about serving God, it fires us up in a whole new way, the way of gratitude and relationship and serving out of love in the power of the Holy Spirit. We long to let him lead us to green pastures of the word and manifest his life in us as we interact with the settings in which he places us each day. A choice is set before us. We can trust in ourselves and our religious routines or we can trust Jesus' grace, listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and living a life of faith. The first way is vanity. The second is life everlasting. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you did it all. Thank you, Lord, that when we stumble, you are so graciously welcome us and bring us back to yourself. Lord, help us walk with you by faith. Help us be those people who mix the word with faith and receive the spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Paul's faithfulness to, and his love and his labor for the Galatians and how it benefits us today. And as we go today, Lord, help us rejoice in that grace you've given us to enjoy moment by moment the relationship with we have with you and do all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray.